This is Tom Fox. Over the next several episodes, Professor Karen Woody and myself are going to take the Woody Report in a different direction. We're going to take a look at the great HBO series Succession Season 4. We're going to dissect it and give you the synopsis. And then Karen and I are going to talk about how it fits into the cultural milieu, what it means for securities law and other laws as the Logan family goes through its throes of whether to have succession or not. I know you'll enjoy this series. Episode 8, Election Night. Election Day is just ending as this episode begins and the siblings are torn over the candidates. Roman supports Minken as he will advance Waystar's agenda, including blocking the Gojo deal, while Kendall is uncomfortable with Mekin due to the blowback from his extreme policies affecting his daughter, Sophie. Shiv, meanwhile, remains aligned with Matson. Shiv finally tells Tom she is pregnant with his child, but Tom reacts skeptically, even asking if this is true. A vote-counting center in Milwaukee is firebombed, destroying thousands of mail-in ballots, which would likely have gone to the Democratic candidate Daniel Jimenez, and thereby leaving Wisconsin as an open call. Roman uses the situation to pressure Tom into having ATN, however, call Wisconsin for Mencken, while Connor concedes to Mencken as well. Kendall ponders backing Jimenez for his family's sakes, but then learns from Greg that Shiv is working with Matson, and hurt by his sister's betrayal, he throws his support to Mencken. Mencken wins the electoral vote in Arizona, so ATN calls the election in his favor. And now, Aaron Woody. Karen, we're on election night, and um, wow, um, where do you want to start at the beginning? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, Tom is running his first election night, no surprise there, and he is, how can I say this, very nervous. (laughs) (laughs) And has a lot of pressure, too. Has a lot of pressure, and to top it all off, decides it's a great night to do coke, just to start off with, this is not the end of the night to get yeah. him through. This is to start off. So um, I thought his meltdown over the food issue was one of the greatest set of lines. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out the bodega sushi does play a role in this. So we should call that out. But he says, yeah. questions bodega sushi, which could lead to a stomach problem, which could lead to a bathroom problem, which could lead to something not going off correctly on a broadcast, which could lead to the Chinese seeing potential weakness, which could lead to an attack on Taiwan, which could lead to nuclear war, which could lead to the primordial soup where we all started as amoebas and how bad would it be if we all became amoebas again? And that takes that whole series. He spits out in at least three to five seconds and it's just hilarious. Yeah, that was great. You know, it's funny you use that word hilarious because that's what like jumped out at me about that scene. Then obviously what we'll get to the wasabi scene, because I actually thought 
that this was a tricky episode to try to thread that needle being funny and funnier in like more slapstick almost ways than we've seen, but also juxtaposed with how hard and this rest of it was to watch. Like it was this sort of like, you know, you felt a little schizophrenic of being like, is this funny? Nothing in this episode is funny right now. And then there is something that's kind of funny. That was a little, that was a little wild, I thought for me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that scene when he's going to, to Greg, why he can't eat bodega sushi and why Greg should also do Coke with him. I mean, it was hysterical. And I didn't fully appreciate at that point that Greg had partied all night with Matson. Um, now, it became clear to me later that had occurred, but what Greg does say is, well, if I do Coke two days in a row, I'll get addicted. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. But um, you shouldn't do Coke two days in a row anyway. <laughs> Nevertheless, it did clearly communicate to me he had done Coke the night before. And uh, from the descriptions I got later, they were probably out very, very late. And we do know he drank some things that he normally doesn't drink, whatever that might have been. Uh, and he danced with an old man, which made me wonder, did they go to a gay bar? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of rumblings about, especially between the Greg, Tom. But there definitely are some Twitter, uh, whatever we call them, posters, I'll just say, who love to tease out the sort of maybe, you know, potential like that being a bit of a storyline. I don't, I don't totally know. It sounded like they were just hazing Greg, that they're just making him do things he didn't want to do. Cause even that description, he says like that old man didn't even want to dance with me. It was all confusing. It wasn't even, so I didn't get the impression. Uh, yeah. It sounded just like um, what would be a description of the wildest sort of, you know, crazy night that probably involved them hazing Greg. <laughs> but actually I had a little bit different take because Greg first says, well, I'm not Greg anymore. Uh, you can't treat me like Greg. And Tom says, no, you are Greg. But I actually thought Greg was a little out of line there because as a subordinate, one of your jobs is to make your boss look good. And sometimes it's to make your boss comfortable. And if your boss is in the highest stress time he has ever had, I feel like as a subordinate, I need to do whatever I can do to help him or her. And if that means get him a bloody cup of coffee, well, I'm going to, you know, toddle myself down and get him a cup of coffee. Uh, so I was a little irritated that Greg didn't see that Tom actually needed support and articulated very well in that scene. But yeah, it was just a hilarious way, I thought, to start. But there was some serious stuff going on as well. And when the, the Bro Brothers uh, started their dynamics and interplay, I didn't see Roman... He didn't melt down, but he certainly had more backbone than I've ever seen him have uh, in his own way. Right. I was going to say, we call that backbone. It's <laughs> sort of like he's spineless and yet also maybe rigid. I mean, it's a weird <laughs> mix, mix of things, but yeah, right. Yeah, he is. He's pretty strident in this one and in the most terrible way. I mean, it's sort of. It was a lot of. It was a lot of PTSD. I think on this episode of just like and just you know, a little too on the nose with everything. And even now, you know, in the sort of recent turmoil at Fox and, you know, the allegations about lies about the voting machines and all of this is so timely, even if we're not looking back at like a 2016 or 2020, um, it's I thought it was pretty close to the bone on some of this discussion. 
which is why I think it was so hard to watch because you do, it makes sense. Of course, that's how a lot of these decisions are made. So you do sort of see this, you know, institution of the news being so compromised by obvious things we always knew were there. I mean, I sort of always said the minute CNN made a 24 hour news channel that everything had to be breaking news, like then it became a little like that to me was the sort of beginning of post-truth because how do you know what's breaking news or what's not breaking news? So there is sort of this, it's shining a light, I think, and one that maybe we have started to see the peek behind the curtain more and more, but of how, you know, slimy some of these, you know, the news can be that changes the course of the free world. Really, I was actually more put off by the firebombing of the boats because that struck me as, you know, it's not a very far stretch to think that it could happen. Right. And I've been involved in very lower level precincts and counties and those places are not hard. They're not secured. No one ever thought that where all the ballot boxes are collected could be subject to a terrorist attack. And that that part kind of worried me because I began to wonder if someone might take that to heart in 2024. And I thought they were talking about 2024 in this, this episode, not right. 2016 or 2020. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, Kendall... Uh, the whole deal with he, his wife, and his daughter. Um, do you think he really believes he is doing this for his daughter? Any does he do anything for his children? Or is that is that just platitudes that people like that spout? You know, I do think he has some concern, but the concern I don't I think he I have to imagine he thinks he's so rich and he's just breathing different air and therefore also his kids should. And so I don't know if it gets to be a writ large sort of like bigger thought that there are people in this world who will be more discriminated against or have a trickier time because of the rise of this sort of whatever it is, you know, racism and, you know, the things that are being stirred about. I think he's a little annoyed because it affects him. And I think that, you know, he loves his daughter. I think <laughs> but I don't think there's some moment of like, oh, this is bad. You know, I think he's just mad that it happened to her. That's what I right. think. So, I mean, I think they play it like maybe he has a bit of a conscience, but I think your question is apt in that it's not even does he have a conscience that is going to, you know, unleash, you know, proto-fascism on country. I think it's does he even care about his daughter that much? And I mean, I think Yes, in sort of a narcissistic way as an extension of him. But yeah, I don't know. That was that was an interesting one. And like, do you think there are some parallels to some extent of Logan there too? Of just like, that's a, that was already a weird example he had of someone who was terrible to him, but then also kind of looked out for him. So I think it's just it's complicated. Yeah, and that was the thought I had, channeling what he knows. Um, uh, you know, you, I don't want to say you do what your parents did to you or you react to, to what they did to you, but that's exactly what Logan would say when Logan was at his lowest, I thought, because Logan didn't do anything but for Logan. <laughs> and he was pretty, pretty open about that. So let's move to Tom and Shiv. Okay. So early on, uh, Shiv takes Tom aside and she apologizes for some of the things she said the night before. We don't know exactly which things he's apologizing for or not. And she, in her transactional mode, even while doing this, is still in transactional mode and says, what are you going to apologize for, basically? 
and uh, he doesn't say anything. And the conversation degenerates a little to the point to a point where she says, I am pregnant with your baby. And you and I have speculated, we've talked, pontificated, wondered about this scene throughout this series. And my initial thought was, what a letdown. I, you know, I thought this was going to be a huge reveal, not the biggest reveal, but some huge reveal at some point. And it was almost an afterthought, I thought. Yeah. Well, what I thought was she had run out of things to say. And so she said that. And when my wife told me she was pregnant, I went a good 60, 90, 120 seconds and said nothing because I was absolutely dumbfounded. And I literally couldn't think of anything to say. And it wasn't that I was upset or mad. I was just couldn't think of anything to say. And she finally said, say something. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you know, great, honey. But so the expression on his face, at first I thought he didn't know what to say. But then he said nothing. Not you're, you shouldn't be a mother, like he said before, or thank God it's mine or whatever. But he said nothing. Any thoughts on that? Or what, I guess, what were you feeling and what were your thoughts? I thought it was so sad. Like, it was such a sad scene because he really has a moment where he's like, he says, is this a tactic? Is this another one? Right. Of your, like, are you even lying to me about that? Because that's an acknowledgement of like, would you go that low to say something that would be that, you know, important, I think, to him or like be that meaningful and he can't believe. I think maybe that she said it in the way she did, but then also like, because of that, he says, maybe you're still just messing with me. And I got to say, you know, I've known people where they have, you know, more flexible relationships with the truth and so, and play dirty. And so I actually had this moment of being like, I kind of understand that I've known people who would say dramatic things to change the topic or to change the, the mode or, you know, whatever, who sort of has an upper hand by just sort of throwing a grenade in with this sort of new information that changes how you're supposed to react, not how you're supposed to relate to that person. And usually it is sort of apropos of nothing just to kind of like change tact, you know, to get on a totally different track. And so I kind of like, I had a moment of like, Oh, I get it. Like, and I get that that's also his reaction of like, are you just throwing this in here so that we don't, you know, just add to this chaos of our relationship. So but I thought it just was sad. Like what a terrible, you know, they just, this show keeps, you know, sucker punching us with things that you don't expect, like it could get worse. And then there is still just like, gosh, like how do you ever recover from that? You know, <laughs> but yeah, it was hard. So start talking about the brothers a little bit earlier. We have a series of scenes with the brothers and the candidates. Roman goes to see Mencken personally and they try to set up a, sort of a post-election I lost strategy up to communicate out. I wasn't, uh, what struck me or, or what I guess I was confused about was why did Roman have to go there personally? Uh, because Kendall did his on the phone. Right. Any, was that, I guess it was a power play by Mencken, but any thoughts on that? Yeah. And especially because in that scene, Mencken does say, spin this loss as a win. So he sort of is having this moment of realizing he might not win. Uh, I thought that was maybe why I had to be in person that, you know, none of this needs to be communicated other than in person, no record of it kind of a thing. Uh, and I thought that's where the night was going, which is 
this is all going to be a spin kind of a la 2020, which is, you know, it's either was rigged or, you know, name it, but something, but it still is going to keep me in the news. That's the win. Um, and then obviously it doesn't go that direction. So maybe it's power play, but also to, you know, acknowledge that those two are for sure in bed together going forward. That's how I read it. Like we're tight. Like we are going to run side by side here. So, yeah. Um, then we get to the, Oh, well, I guess we have to talk a little bit about Connor because he gets a little play in this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and at first I thought, well, this is comic relief, but I really felt bad for him. Uh, it was really sad. He realizes he's not going to get any votes or may not even the 1%. And so he concedes basically and throws his support, i.e. the state of Alaska, to Mencken in one of the most bizarre concession speeches right. ever heard. Right. And he's looked, he thinks he's going to get an ambassadorship to Slovenia. <laughs> I, I, didn't, not I thought that is like, I read that as like maybe he realizes halfway through whatever Hathcock speech he was giving that he wasn't going to get it. And so he just blew it up. I mean, it was like he has this recognition, just keeps saying crazier things. Clearly were not planned. So I didn't know if he had a moment of like, this is all, I'm not even going to get what I want. So I'm just going to say whatever I think. That was wild. That was that was also sort of a crazy scene. I also got a sense of his relationship with Willa. Um, she's clearly the best thing that's ever happened to him. <laughs> and while she may have had some reservations about saying yes to his proposal of marriage, she is clearly supporting him. Mm-hmm. And she's clearly a rock for him um, that he didn't have before. And I don't know if it's just outright love or it's this is my husband and I'm going to support him or or whatever it is, but I've really enjoyed seeing that relationship develop and, and see her sort of grow as well. Yeah. Who would have thought that would be sort of the, the paragon of relationships was going to be Connor and Willa in this show. But I mean, there are not many others to look to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. So we get to uh, the scenes where the two brothers and Shiv are together and Kendall asked Shiv to co- go call Nate to see if they can get something out of Jimenez. And Shiv fakes a call. And when that happened, I went, well, something bad's going to happen here. Uh, and if something bad does happen. And Kendall, real- Kendall then follows up with Nate, finds out that Shiv didn't call. And then somehow Greg appears and tells Kendall that Matson has told him that Shiv is on Team Matson. Right. And there's a huge confrontation between the, the the kids, and Shiv really has no bullets left to fire, uh, other than "Don't be mean to me." I think I heard her essentially say that. How did you think that scene played out? You know, I thought that was maybe I've overestimated Shiv somewhat, but I thought that was such a disappointment. I usually thought she's savvier than that. And the other thing that sort of bothered me a bit about this episode and this arc is that it's not a done deal. I mean, I get that, like, it just, it feels a little false that like a regulatory stop will actually end the deal. Like, there's a lot of ifs. I think we talked about this last week. That's a lot of putting your eggs in one basket that is not necessarily going that way. You know, that that can be entirely directed by the executive, maybe, but that seems like, a little less. And so then to think that there could be this quasi promise from a potential Democratic candidate that then would, you know, result in this deal not going through seems like such a long shot 
no matter what. So I was sort of surprised that she even faked it. Like it seemed like a thing that she could call him in as, and he could just say something, nothing would be promised. You know, how do you promise to have that result? So it seemed like a silly lie. And also the whole premise that like whoever gets elected will bust up this deal. Also it seems like a, that's a wild card, I think, but that doesn't seem to be what the writers think. And then I got the sense in that scene, Kendall thought this was the ultimate betrayal. And we've seen a lot of betrayals over three seasons. And so I first thought, why should this one be the ultimate? Everything's fluid. It's all transactional. We got you today, but you may have us tomorrow. So, you know, don't piss off everybody completely. Did, did you get that sense that Kendall thought this was the ultimate betrayal? Yeah, I mean, I think he realizes how much he had confided in her. They all seem to be on the same page, hoping the deal doesn't go through. But yet last week, wasn't it last week or two weeks ago? I can't even remember. They're running together. He was the one who said, you know, one head, one crown. Like he himself. Last week. Yeah, it was last week. I think he would call that a different type of, um, that's not a total betrayal. I think he would say like, we're still on this together, but I'm just going to take the lead. As opposed to, She's backstabbing us and working with Matson to like against our interests, uh, I think is a big deal and a bigger deal than maybe what he had said last week. Uh, we forgot the chicken and steak story. Oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> Roman and Kendall get into a tiff around who gets their way or who got their way the most often. And it revolved around whether the dinner meat was chicken or steak. And Kendall wanted chicken and Roman wanted steak. And when that happened at first, I thought, I can't believe this. And the second I thought, it's of course it, he's bringing that up. He's still pissed off that you know, <laughs> he didn't win and his big brother did. What did you think of all that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's another time we've seen them pull forward some memory. We saw it last week or two weeks ago when Schiff talked about spilling milk in the Range Rover, which is just already comical because you have this weird mix of like a Norman Rockwell sort of Everyone else has spilled milk in their car, but they drop in that it's the Range Rover. I think it's always, it's just sort of a funny mix of worlds. But this seemed the same way. Like, oh, sure. Like all families are going to, you know, going to have some squabble over chicken and steak. But you're right. I think Roman is saying a bigger thing here, which is we always do what Kendall wants. Kendall's the older brother. He's always sort of seen as the one who's going to take charge. And Roman has sort of been a bit of the clown or, you know, maybe not taken as seriously. And so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a bigger statement behind that, but it was, it was funny how they, they, they brought it up. So as we run up to the end of the episode, uh, there's a fire in Wisconsin. There's discussion of what can they call Wisconsin with a hundred thousand ballots that are from Milwaukee and are probably democratic. Uh, Kendall and Roman particularly say, call it. Uh, and they have a character in this. Who's the, the caller. I know that's not his title, but right. he's the one that makes the final decision. And this is where the wasabi comes back in. Right. So he sits down and is, he's told what to do. He sits down, opens his computer, and has to move the plastic that the sushi's in and gets some wasabi on his finger and rubs it in his eye. And I have pepper in my eye, so I know that's quite painful. And then Greg compounds it by pouring a lemon-flavored drink <laughs> on his face. At first, I thought this is going to lead to something big. It turned out it didn't, but I think it was season one where they hired a, a family therapist Yeah, and they went on a retreat 
and the guy dove into a very shallow pool and, and shattered his face. Oh, right. And, and that's what ended the, the family therapy session was he lost several teeth and, and he had to go to the emergency room. So I wondered about whole kind of face dynamic and what was going on with that. And was that a big deal or was it just comic relief? I, I thought it was the latter, which is why I was not impressed. I feel like some people have called this the Aaron Sorkin sort of episode. Things are moving really fast, but we're talking the whole time. But even there are these sort of weird one-off, like I said, on the slapstick kind of scene that I, I have to say, I didn't think it fit. Like it was funny, but it was just like, I don't know. Another, you know, it was a way to insert some funny Greg lines, but it just seemed like I didn't think it was a fit for the rest of the episode being as heavy as it was. So the Wisconsin call, although controversial, is more significant for the next one, which was Arizona. And Arizona gives Minken, under the ATN count, enough votes in the Electoral College to be elected president. And of course, unofficial because it's uh, ATN calling it, but they make the call. And all of the things you said when we started about the manipulation by the press and all of that played out, played out beautifully. But what intrigued me about that scene was the vitriol directed at Tom by social media and other media outlets. And they don't seem to understand Tom had nothing to do with this and made clear it was their call. Uh, I was really kind of intrigued by that, how they wouldn't have understood, or did they believe somehow that there was a wall of separation between ownership and management? Yeah. I mean, well, I think there's usually is, there's that comment about how there's no brass on the news floor. I think they're supposed to be in theory, supposed to just be calling the news. But like you said, we all get this peek behind the curtain and see not the case. And there certainly is a, a narrative that they're pushing. I think he tries to, you know, like claim he has some clean hands because it's not his call. Cause I think everybody knows how shady this is, but it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. That might play into Tom's arc going forward and what happens with him. That's a really good point. So we get to the end and I have to say, I thought this was the greatest line, the greatest part of the show. Kendall is going home in his, his driver in this driver with his driver's drivers driving the car calls his ex-wife, says, I want to come over and see the kids. She's like, come on, you know, it's 11, 12, whatever it is. And then he says to the driver, some people just can't do a deal. And for me, that that point tied to the scene where he confronts Shiv after he found out she was uh, two-timing him with Matson behind his back, mm-hmm. I thought was a major character shift. I liken it to... Macbeth. Hmm. Uh, it was, I thought he realized it's all about the deal. And he admitted it to himself and he admitted it to his driver. Um, the only other time I've seen that so powerfully done was in the book, Mystic River, not the movie, hmm. where the criminal realizes he can put his gang back together and has this entire internal monologue. But that's what I saw. But I saw Macbeth in that scene and I, I just blew me away. The steely look in his eye. We will take no prisoners. We will do the deal. And because the deal was with Mencken and they're in bed with him. And I don't know if they think they control him or they just are partners going down, down the road forward. But I just, that last scene blew me away. Yeah, it was, it was sobering for sure. 
I think it is, you know, I think it was him also like Tom sort of trying to say, Hey, this is how, this is how this goes. This is not totally my call. You know, there, there's, there are a lot of other things involved. So I, you know, it's sort of a clearing of his own conscience in some way of like this, you know, this is just the deal. We're just talking about the deal and he can kind of overlook the obvious consequences of that. But yeah, I, it was very interesting. And I also thought it was interesting. So I read somewhere that the driver has been in every season. And so they sort of was an interesting commentary about how Kendall's weirdly more loyal than some of the other Roy's. He's not necessarily kind or that, you know, all entirely invested, but he um, he's had these same people around him, both his Jess, his assistant, and then this driver, which was, I think an interesting, uh, interesting commentary, commentary about maybe a characteristic of Kendall. Um, I had thought we were going to end the season at the funeral, but apparently not. Mm-hmm. Apparently that will be our next episode because that's the next day. Yeah. So until the funeral, uh, I can't wait. Till then. See you, Tom. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Succession Season 4 as much as Carrie and I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. We're doing every episode uh, on a weekly basis after the episode premieres on Sunday night. So I hope you will join in again next week where we take up the next episode of Succession. The Woody Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.